have a live conflict resolution. This is, this is not staged. It's only been planned by me and not the other side, but we're going to have live conflict resolution. I want you to see it happen in the flesh that you're like, oh, so, so that's how. And here's the context. So we go on a community group retreat this summer and we get home and uh, I'm unpacking the bags and I'm like, what in the world is this? And I pull out something um, <laughs> that was the most ridiculous, like flea shop, truck stop, knickknack, just weird. It looked like a, like a crystal obelisk idol. And uh, I don't know who other than Beth Bernard would have put it there. And so uh, we sent her a text right over here. Thank you. And when we just kept it because Laura, my wife, loves a good prank. Like she's all about it. And she's like, that's going to come in handy. That's actually a blessing in disguise. And so throughout the year, we've just got this like weird crystal thing in our garage and a, a Watermark member invited us to come over and we're like, as we're walking out, we're like, the crystal. And so Laura smuggles it in her purse and we go to the person's house. Now, uh, you, you are in this room. You don't know, but you have that weird crystal pagan idol in your house and you have not known, but you're here. And so today you're gonna to find out. And if you have white shelves in your house, I'd like the show of hands for white shelves in your house. Okay, you might be a contestant <laughs> and we might be in conflict. So I've got a picture of it, here it is. This is inside your house. And if you would zoom out just a little bit, you'll see whose house that's in. <laughs> Rebecca Holmes is in beside Blake with her hands on her chest. That little wolf crystal pagan idol, put it back on the screen because you need to know what our lead pastor, that's sitting just, so Holmes family, if you're looking at your mantle, it's just to the left. <laughs> and... We, we might need to get, we might need to get Blake a microphone for this because uh, now, because I have done something to you and frankly, your whole family, I need to ask. You need to ask the forgiveness of the other family we blamed for putting that on ourselves. No, it's actually now that's. It's been a gag. No, no. It's now been a gag. Well, that's, that's on you <laughs> for wrongfully accusing someone. Uh, but, but, entire Holmes family and, and Gage and Avery, I think, are down at Baylor, sick and bears. But, Holmes family, would you please forgive me? Absolutely. Maybe. <laughs> I got an absolutely from Rebecca and a maybe from Blake. And it turns out, it sounds like the, the, the wolf crystal is now making its way through DFW. So beware, you've been warned. But the reality is, uh, that's one of three times that Blake and I have asked for each other's forgiveness in the last two weeks. So that one's just in fun, but we were in a meeting about a week and a half ago before break, and, and we, because we had both hurt each other, asked for each other's forgiveness. 
in, in all sincerity as we're working together. And that's because it's, it's inevitable, isn't it? Like I sin, Blake sins, everyone in this room sins, and we're in relationship together. And so frankly, the closer in relationship that you are, the more probable it's going to be that you're going to affect someone. You're going to hurt someone. You're going to be in conflict with them. And so it is essential that we are asking for each other's forgiveness. And not just asking for each other's forgiveness, but like Rebecca, not so much like Blake, we are extending forgiveness (laughs) when asked. But they were asking and extending forgiveness. And in this way, we are living out the gospel with each other. The good news, the forgiveness that we have received from God through Jesus, we're now living out with one another in the body of Christ that there may be no division. It is because sin is inevitable, forgiveness is essential. And I don't think I probably need to remind you of this on the heels of Thanksgiving and being with all the family and extended family and the pressure and all that that brings and walking into Christmas and the stress of the holiday season. I think it's really timely of the Lord, providential, that he would have us squarely in the middle of the first marital fight we see in Scripture. The first conflict, interpersonal conflict in Scripture right here in Genesis chapter 3. And so today we're continuing our made series. It's made for a different world. This is the broken version. And so God, in his kindness, grace, and mercy, has infused love and forgiveness to us that it would overflow to others. Truly, we are made to live out the gospel in this world. We are made to gospel our relationships. And I'm using that word as a verb very intentionally, which I'll get to in a little bit. We are made to gospel our relationship. The context is um, man, Adam and Eve are hiding. They've covered themselves in fig leaves. They're hiding in the trees as TA covered well last week, the difference between guilt and shame. So there they are hiding. They hear God walking. And now God's going to engage with them like what is going on? They're hiding from him because of the sin. And here's what it says in verse 312. The man said, this is Adam talking, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. By way of a little bit of preview, we're going to see a bad process from Adam and Eve. And then we're going to see God's process. We'll see bad cues bad instruction, bad cues from Adam and Eve, then we're going to see good news from Jesus that we can model and emulate. It's going to be a topical sermon, and we're going to step from Genesis 3, 12, and 13 throughout the canon of Scripture, looking at all that God has to say, not all of it, it's, it's so innumerable, but so many different examples and instructions of how we can walk through conflict, how we can gospel our relationships And so with that, I want to pray first because uh, we need to. Because this isn't going to happen just by hearing a message. This will happen by transformation of hearts, and I can't do that, but God can. So Father, I, I pray in total desperation right now that the gospel which we have received from you, the good news of Jesus Christ, that it wouldn't infect us and affect us in every one of our relationships because we're sitting against each other. 
And I think that if we learned, I know, I don't think, I know from your word, if we learned to ask for and extend forgiveness, that revival would break out because we wouldn't be hindered by sin. And the watching world would be astounded by the love that they would see. So Lord, do this in us, every single one, amen. All right, so the bad process. The bad process of Adam and Eve is the blame game. Like, watch this, it's incredible. The blame game that happens. First of all, Adam blames Eve. He's gonna go through three different steps. The first one is that Adam blames Eve. He doesn't even call her by her name. This is like David Allen Coe, like you never call me by my name. He says, the woman. Like if you're in a conflict with your spouse, maybe in community group, maybe at dinner, maybe with your in-laws, don't say the woman. It's not gonna go well. Call her honey, babe, sweetheart. Don't say the woman or the man, but he says the woman. Can you imagine the glare from Eve? Like, okay, so that's where we are. Okay, Adam. Dinner's going to be cold tonight. Notice how the terms of endearment drop off. He calls her Eve, the mother of all living, but here he says, the woman. And we do this, right? Like when, I'm, when Laura and I are good, it's like, babe, sweetheart, honey, hey. And then the second any kind of tension arrives, it's Laura. And like all the endearment. When our kids do something, it's not, uh, we call Hill. We, his nickname is Bear. It's not Bear. We're like, Hill David Elmore. And we go full name whenever there's sin that enters in, this blame game, the woman. But he doesn't stop there. He also blames God, which is like, that's a, that's a pretty strong flex. Uh, he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. He's like, I was fine, God. Like, everything was fine. I wasn't eating that true. I was not going to eat that fruit. Everything was fine. You gave me the woman. Like, look what happened. And it's exactly what we do. It's Proverbs 19.3, listen to this. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin. So when, when my life, my ways bring my life to ruin, it says his heart rages against the Lord. Look, no one can make you sin. God certainly will not make you sin. Nor does he tempt anyone, that's what James says. But no one can make you sin. So often when we're parenting our kids, they'll come in and they're like, so-and-so, you know, and that's why I did this. And I'm like, they can't make you do that. You can be tempted. Uh, you can be frustrated. But no one can make you sin. You yourself alone are responsible for every sin that you've ever committed. So blames Eve, blames God. And then the next one is to excuse, gives an excuse to justify the action. He says, she gave me the fruit of the tree. It's like, well, so what, Adam? Drop it. Like, she didn't force it into your mouth. Like, now it's, it's, hey, the woman that you gave me, and she gave it to me. It's like, you're just making excuses. And anytime, I've told you, we're going to get bad cues from Adam and Eve. Anytime you are making an excuse when you're in conflict, it's only going to make things worse. It's just gonna escalate things because that person will not feel heard. And so rather than taking ownership, there's excuses. Like, well, he gave me the weed. You left your laptop unlocked. I was, when you were out of town, I was left at home alone. It's all the different justifications to excuse the action. And then you get to Eve. And, and Eve, at first glance, you're like, oh, she did pretty good. She says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
And you're like, well, that's actually, that's, that's less words than Adam, like less excuses, less blame game. She just, she's kind of saying what happened and that she ate, like she confessed, right? Like serpent deceived her, she confessed. No, Eve gives what I would say is a half truth given as the whole truth, which is no truth. So when our kids do this, some, someone will come in, they'll be like, so-and-so pushed me. And we're like, man, that's weird. Like, why would they just push you? Like, that's, did, did you do anything? No. They just pushed me. And then we'll go and talk to the other person. First to plead their case. First child to plead their case is always wrong. Uh, and we're like, hey, did you, you just pushed your sister? I'm like, well, she, she took something or she hit me or she called me this. It's like, oh, okay. And then we have the conversation with them of like, hey, that half truth you told me that, that he hit you, but you didn't say that you pushed him or stole something from him. You know what you just did? You deceived me. You were trying to deceive me. You lied to me by telling me a half truth as the whole truth, which actually was no truth at all, which is exactly what Eve was doing here. It's like, she's like, well, the serpent deceived me. It's like, uh, Eve, I think there's a little more there. And be like, oh yeah, um, I wanted to be like you. I thought if I ate it, I wouldn't have to answer to you. I would be like you. Thank you. That would have helped. And then, and then you ate it. Is that it, Eve? Like nothing else? It's like, yeah, I, I ate it, and then I gave it to another. Matthew 18. It says, you know, woe to the world because temptation's bound to come. But woe to the one through whom the temptation comes. It would be better that a millstone be tied around their neck. It's like, okay, you sin, that's on you. You lead someone else into sin, God sees it as this whole other ordeal. And so she gives this half-truth. And we take our bad cues from them. Nobody had to teach us this stuff. We do the same thing. We blame to avoid shame. Like, I don't want to have the indignity that I did what I did, and so I'm just going to start blaming. We're going to give excuses to justify the offense. And then also, we'll give half-truths to deceive. Like, I mean, we do it all the time. We'll give them an answer. It's just not the whole answer, which is deception. And so we've got to turn from this. The other thing that you'll notice from this passage, and this is haunting. These are the last spoken words by Adam recorded in the Bible. Now, God has a final word, as T.A. said last week in Romans 5, with the second Adam, Jesus But Adam's last spoken words are these to Eve recorded in the Bible. Eve goes on to name children, so she's got some more speaking that she does. And my point here is that if sin is not addressed, it can be a terrible end to a friend. And so we have got to, got to, as we are living and breathing this side of eternity where sin is inevitable, we have got to move forward in the essential nature of asking for and extending for forgiveness. It's not this Bible, because um, my vision has since changed. I used to have a, a smaller Bible, but I had, a, I had a yellow Post-it note on the inside cover of my Bible. And I had names written there. And the names that were written were people that I had hurt in my life. And one in particular was a college friend, and I had said some terrible things to him. Terrible. It was the last time I saw him, and I had no way of getting in touch with him. I didn't have his number. I uh, couldn't find anything on Google. And so I'm just like, there's, there's his name, Lane. 
and it was written on the inside of my Bible, and I'm, and I'm here at this very church, seminary, like before I was even a member, I'm just like attending, going to another church, but I was here on a Sunday, and I've got it on the inside of my Bible, and I'm sitting there outside by the pond praying, and I look up, and there he is. There's Lane. And I was like, oh my goodness. And I walk up, and I said, hey, can I show you something real quick? And he's like, hey, hey, how's it going? He had, it's like, you see your name there? He's like, that's crazy. Why is my name in your Bible? I was like, the last time we talked, I said horrible things to you. Will you please forgive me? Because like Adam, my last words were going to be the terrible end to a friend. But the Lord had changed my heart by forgiving me, and now I was going to move towards him. And so rather than playing the blame game like Adam and Eve, I want to walk us through something when there is a foul against you or committed by you, when there is a foul in life, how we need to gospel our relationships. And so anybody watching college football this, this past break over Thanksgiving? Yes, great. Yep, whoop, it's you Aggies. A personal foul is the worst thing you can do in, in football. A personal foul is unnecessary roughness or a dirty play specifically aimed at injuring the other person. And this is what we do when we sin against someone. It is a personal foul. And so when we've done that, we have got to reconcile the relationship by asking for forgiveness. Now I said when there's been a foul, we need to gospel our relationships. First, foul. I'm going to walk us through an acrostic. The F is for follow God, not your feelings. The O is to own your part. The U is if you're in unrest in a relationship, to move to unity, from unrest to unity. And the L is to love like God. You're going to have time. They'll be on the screen. You can write them down later or we'll send out the sermon notes. And then I said we need to gospel our relationships. And I'm using the word gospel as a verb very intentionally. It's what grammarians are calling denominalization. And it's happening a lot these days. So you would say like, hey, they friended me. Well, friend is a noun. But because of Facebook, when you have friended someone, you've now made that noun into a verb. It's an action that they take. When you say, like, I Googled something. Well, Google's a noun. It's a company. It's a website. You can't, you can't use it as a verb, except now that we do, we verb it. So when you say, hey, I Googled Texas A&M. And why are they so obnoxious? <laughs> you walk right in those traps. That's why I love that community college down there. They're always available. And... Uh, <laughs> And they hiss. That's even weirder. Uh, we stayed at an Airbnb this summer, and I lay down in the bed, and I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So I contact the homeowner, and I was like, hey, I'm being tacoed by your bed. And he knew exactly what I was talking about. I laid down on the bed, and it like, foomp, like it tacoed me. And so what I'm saying is, when we foul, when there is a foul in a relationship, we need to gospel the relationship. Now, the verb that I'm using, here's how I'm going to tell you what it is. And maybe you're already getting it. Like, when there's a foul, you know, the gospel is there's, there's sin against us and God that has separated us. We've committed sin. It's separated us from God. Now, we acknowledge that sin. We come into the light and we're like, hey, God, you're sovereign. I am sinful. You're holy. I'm not. And so I'm acknowledging that sin. I'm confessing it in the gospel. Then in the gospel, there is forgiveness. God, through Jesus Christ, who was crucified for you, raised from the dead, there is forgiveness by God through the Son 
towards you in the gospel. Then there is reconciliation. Through that forgiveness in the gospel, you're brought back together and there is unity in the gospel. So when I say we foul one another, we hurt one another, we need to gospel the relationship. Like infuse the gospel, use the gospel, move the gospel in our relationships because, because of sin, there's been division and there needs to be forgiveness so that there's reconciliation and unity. The gospel is vertical for us and then moves horizontally towards each other, towards the house of God in particular and then especially towards unbelievers that they might experience the forgiveness and grace of God. So we need to gospel our relationships. Now, the best way to avoid a fight is we're talking about conflict. Uh, I'm going to ask Alex Hockett here to, to throw this rope up. We're talking about conflict, and I think a lot of times we, we hear conflict, and you're already like shut down, like, oh, gosh, it's so hard, it's awkward, and they escalate, and I invalidate and withdraw, and we just don't even want to deal with it. That's why I'm using the word we need to gospel it, because that's a redemptive good word, which is what we need. But here, whenever like Laura and I fight, and Alex is stronger here, but when, when there's a disagreement with Laura and I, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. No, I'm gonna win you to my side. I'm gonna, okay, okay, that was good. I'm gonna lawyer you or I'm gonna escalate. Oh, oh, really? You're gonna pull me? And we're just like, you can feel the tension of like, I'm gonna win you to my side. Now, Alex is stronger than me. If he pulls hard, I'm gonna break an ankle. <laughs> what scripture says is that when you feel that conflict, when you feel that tug of like, okay, we're, we're moving in different directions. It says to drop the rope. Drop the rope. When you feel that relational tug, that you're just to drop the rope. And not only that, because we're still apart from each other, but that we would move towards each other. I mean, there's times, <laughs> you want a loving embrace? There you go, but let's give Alex a hand. Uh, and not just for the tug of war. The guy is like, man, this whole team, frankly, it's about 30 people making everything happen. God bless y'all. But that's what scripture says. It's right here in Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So when you let out water, you think about a levee breaking or, or just anything, irrigation. It's like once water's out, you can't like collect it back in. It, it's, it's gone. The, the horse is out of the barn. So therefore, it says, he's like, God's like, it's like that. So quit the quarrel before it breaks out. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Drop the rope. Just like when you feel that tug, drop the rope and move towards each other. Now we get to F, because once you, if you didn't drop the rope and you find yourself within that conflict, here's how we begin to gospel the relationship. One is to follow God, not your feelings. I remember I had been hurt like deeply, like the biggest hurt that I've ever experienced in my life. And I was filled with, with like hatred, rage, I wanted revenge. And I remember thinking like, this is killing me. Like the unforgiveness in what I feel towards them is literally killing me. Then Jesus saves me. Um, I've become born again and my mind is now changing and I'm reading the words of God. And all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I can't actually take revenge or hate that person. Jesus is telling me to love, pray for, and bless them. And so... I started following God rather than my feelings, my feelings that were like, man, I am hurt and I'm gonna hurt you. Instead, I started sharing the gospel with this person probably a dozen times and not like, you dirty sinner, you deserve to die, but Jesus died for you, so I hope you trust him. It was like, 
a, a very gracious invitation. I, I ask for their forgiveness. Um, I began praying for them regularly, still will. And found out over the course of time, as I'm like looking, I'm like, okay, I've loved them, I've prayed for them. We don't even live in the same city. Like, how would I bless them? I don't even know how I'd bless them. What am I going to do? Like Venmo them? Like, that'd be weird. And, uh, but I found out they were having a kid. I was like, you know what? I bet they got, I bet they're got like a baby shower registry or something. So I jump online, find it, sure enough, send them a baby gift. I was like, hey, Psalm 127, blessing, children are a blessing from the, from the Lord, a heritage. And you know what happened? It's not what happened to them, it's what happened to me. As I followed God and not my feelings, as I gospeled that relationship, the love of God moved through me and pushed all that black, evil, hatred, revenge out of me. And I think probably did something in their life too. You follow God and not your feelings. Here it is in Leviticus 19, 17 through 18. Didn't think we were going Leviticus today, but we are. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, which is what I was doing, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. I think the reason frankly is there is because I, I, a lot of times we beat around the bush. Or we don't really like say what it is because we're afraid we're going to offend them even though they've sinned against us or whatever it is. And it's like, no, go, go reason frankly. Like just say what it is. Yes, it's going to be awkward. Sin is awkward. But reason frankly. Lest you incur sin because of him. Now that's a strange thing. They're the one that sinned against you, and now God's saying, like, no, you need to go reason, you need to go talk to them. You need to talk it over. And if you don't, you're actually going to be in sin. You're like, hold up. They sinned against me. Why? <laughs> if I don't talk to them, I'm going to be in sin? Yes. Why? Because you will begin to hate your brother or sister in your heart. That root of bitterness that will grow up to defile many will be there. The way to get it out is to talk it over, follow God and not your feelings. It goes on to say, you shall not take revenge, that would be to escalate, or bear a grudge, that would be to withdraw and be like, well, I'm not going to kill you, I'm just going to act like you're dead to me. Bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, and here's the second greatest command, it's found here, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. First, love the Lord your God. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. It's right there in Leviticus 19, in the midst of conflict, frankly. He's like, hey, the way you want to be loved Love others. That's follow God, not feelings. The O, own your part. Own your part. This is to own 100% of your 2% or your 4% or your 50% or your 98%, but that you take 100% ownership of what you did regardless of what they did. It's not the like, well, I did that because you did this. That's, that's Adam and Eve style. We're not taking our cues from them. We're taking good news. We are gospeling this relationship, which is to, in the gospel, you confess your sin to God. Here we are confessing it to others. We're owning our part. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your own brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Sometimes Laurel will get like mascara. Sometimes she's like, oh, there's something in my eye. I'm like, is it a log? <laughs> she doesn't laugh like you guys do. <laughs> it's the strangest thing. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. There's own your part. 
And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In a conflict, when two people are in it together, God says, hey, take the log out of your own eye first. And we should. But I think sometimes we stop there like, well, I own my part. But we're shepherding one another. We're in a body together. We're, we, you know, like, like if I have spinach in my teeth, I can't see it, but you can. I need you to tell me like, hey, man, you, you've got something in your teeth. And God's saying, we do that to each other. Just take ownership of your part first. Then, he, Jesus says, you will be able to take the speck out. You have a responsibility and faithfulness to do so, but your first responsibility is to own your own part. Now, when do you do that? As soon as the Spirit brings it to mind, and hopefully it will be that day. Proverbs 6, 2 through 4. If you are ensnared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, you've said something you shouldn't have said, maybe you gossiped, maybe you hurt them with your words, maybe you escalated, maybe there was a barbed remark, whatever it was, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Go. So there's a like, I'm going to move towards you. I'm going I'm to be in your inner personal. Go. Hasten. So that's quickly. And plead, which is a humble, it's not talking at them, it's pleading urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. God's like, when do you do this? Before you go to bed that day. Ephesians, do not let the sun go down on your anger and thus give the devil a foothold. He's like, that day, that's how important it is because if you don't, you're gonna leave that seed of bitterness or resentment or anger with them and you're gonna put it off and the longer you put it off, the more you're gonna forget and start to diminish it and it will be unaddressed. And so that day, Jesus says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. I think the Lord here is like, hey, we, we are good vertically. Like you're forgiven, blood of Jesus, cleanse you from all sin. You've been adopted as my son or daughter. You're indwelt by the spirit. Nothing can ever change that. Nothing can take you from the father's hands, separate you from the love of God. However, your brother or sister has something against you. So we're good. You leave your gift here. You go work that out quickly. Like, and, and, and put a priority on that. Don't come worship me when there's division between the family of God. And I wonder if we would have like stopped everyone at the door and said, hey, hold on. Before you walk through these doors, before you sing, before you offer a sacrifice of praise with your lips, are you good with everybody? Do you need to ask for forgiveness of anyone or seek, extend forgiveness to anyone? Because if so, just go do that first. And if in a really holy and right way, it would have been a little more quiet this morning. But we have the opportunity to go out from these doors and do so. And so I want you to take a moment. You can close your eyes, you can journal. But I want you to take a moment and ask God, like, who is it? Who is it I need to own my part? Who is it that I need to ask for forgiveness from? And hopefully spouses didn't just elbow the person next to them. 
But I want you to go and ask that person for forgiveness. Spirit will bring it to mind. And if that wasn't enough time, go get alone more. Journal through. There may be a list. There was for me. And then you ask them for forgiveness. It's, it's so simple, and yet it is the hardest phrase to say in the English language. There is nothing, I believe, more difficult to say than will you please forgive me? It's not please forgive me. That's different. That's, hey, I've sinned against you. Now I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to attach please to it, and I'm going to assume that you are. I'm just going to tell you, please forgive me. That is altogether different than saying, will you please forgive me? And now you've left yourself in a very vulnerable position. You've asked them a question, and they either can or can't, will or won't. But if it doesn't have a question mark in the end of it, you have not asked for their forgiveness. And so, so that we can like, all get a practice round in this together. Let's say it together on the count of three. Will you please forgive me? One, two, three. Will you please forgive me? Yes, of course. I love you. Uh, there's somebody you need to say that to. Somebody you need to ask that question of. And when then they do, when they on their part, there's someone you need to extend that grace to just as Jesus has with you. Y'all, this should, this should mark us. We have received forgiveness of sins from a holy, just God. We have Christians. If you place your faith in Jesus, you've experienced the greatest forgiveness in the world. And yet, this side of eternity, we still sin. Therefore, we should be ones that are marked by asking others for forgiveness because we, out of all people, understand it more than anyone else and should be extending it. Last week in our community group, uh, one of the wives had, had hurt her husband and it was, it was in front of everyone. And so they talked and then she literally walked back into the room. We didn't know this was going to happen. She's like, you know what, guys, that was bad. Will you all please forgive me? I mean, just like showered her with grace. And you know what it was? It wasn't like, <laughs> she blew it. We all looked at her and was like, I've never been more proud of that person in my life. Like that, I want to be like that. Because we're all guilty of sin in various ways against each other. And so we've got the gospel in our relationship. She came in and acknowledged sin and asked for forgiveness. She was gospeling in that relationship. This should be normalized, asking for forgiveness. And I think if it was, revival would break out. I think there's so much enmity and strife and division and conflict, unresolved, bitterness that should never be. But if we got that out of the house of God, imagine how we'd be unhindered for the things of the kingdom. And I want to give you a, a pro move from David. Like David, man, he went big on, on one particular sin. Committed adultery and then killed one of his best friends. It was uh, his, his buddy's wife that he slept with, and then just to cover it up, he thought, well, I'll just, I'll kill him, or have him killed, rather. But I want you to listen to this exchange, because it's intense. And I'm going to read it with voice inflection that I think may have captured the moment. And then I want you to listen for one singular phrase where it, it is amped up. David says something, and it's just calm and changes the whole conversation. So here it is, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan, the prophet, said to David on behalf of God, 
You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king of Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Listen to the conversation shift. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. David, in a sense, says, you're right. Unlike the cues from Adam and Eve of blame shifting, blaming others, blaming God, making excuses, giving a half-truth, he says, you're right. I've sinned against the Lord. And the whole conversation shifts, and Nathan's like, the Lord's forgiven your sin. You're not going to die. You see that? Your right stops the fight saying, you're right, stops the fight. Laura and I were arguing recently, and I'm like driving, staring, and I'm so frustrated, but I felt the Holy Spirit be like, she's right. And so I said those words. I said, Laura, you're right. She was like, oh, I feel like I'm gonna cry. And I was like, no, no, wait, I was trying to make it better. And she's like, no, happy tears. <laughs> Your right stops the fight. I want you to memorize those words. Your right, so hard to say, so powerful to calm the fight. There's a resource. If you go to watermark.org slash conflict, watermark.org slash conflict, there's an entire uh, booklet that's taken from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, about how to walk through conflict in a gospel way, how to live the gospel in relationships. Thirdly, the you. U is for unrest to unity. So if you have unrest in a relationship where you're like, oh man, I don't even want to see them anymore. Maybe you screen their calls. Maybe you ghost them on text. Maybe you don't want to see them this morning. Like you've got unrest. That is an indicator on your dash of your life. That's a light going off being like, hey, you've got to move to unity. You're in unrest. They're in the body of Christ or separated from God. You've got to move towards unity. Unification is the reason for confrontation. So sometimes when we're in a conflict, we're like, all right, there's gonna be a confrontation. We're gonna have this like Old West showdown. It's not to shame them. It's not to twist their knife. It's not to rub their nose in it. It's not to shun them. It's not to embarrass them. But rather that confrontation, the sole reason should be for unification. 
Unification is the aim of confrontation. It's not to like show them all their sin and how much they hurt you. But rather, it's that you would be unified back to each other under the Lord. That's the reason why. Here it is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, after there had been church discipline, Paul writes, he said, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. There was unrest because of a person in sin, that's 1 Corinthians 5, and so because of that, they needed to move towards unity, and so the confrontation, the purpose was for unification. Now, how do we do this? How do we, if we are in rest with a person, how do you move towards unity? Jesus gives us the, the prescription here in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You don't have to think like, well, I know what they're going to say whenever I say it, you know, and they're going to justify it or whatever. Obedience is not determined by the outcome. You go, if you have unrest, for the purpose of unity, and you say, hey, this is, this is how I was hurt. Can I talk to you after having owned your part first? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others. Not to like gang up and dogpile, but in a sense of shepherding someone that has sinned. As the way you would want to be loved. Love your neighbor as yourself. You might think like, well, but what if they never ask for forgiveness? Like what if I go and I show them their fault or I take two or three others and they never ask for forgiveness? A couple of weeks ago, I told you a story about when I was shot with a shotgun. It was a dove hunting accident. There was a bird flying low. And uh, as I'm watching it, I, I lay my gun down. I'm like, nah, there's too many people in this field. Poof, like flash of light. And I just like, I mean, get lit up, drop my gun in the mud. And I feel so much stinging, burning pain all over me. And I take my hands and I pull them up and I've got blood all over my hands. It hit my nose, like could have been blind in my left eye. My arms are bleeding. My neck was bleeding. So this was no like, oh, you got peppered? No, I got shot. Two weeks later, well, this old man across the field, <clears throat> we're in Dumas, Texas. He was like, did I get you? And I just like, I hold up my bloody hands. I go, what do you think? He's like, sorry about that. That was it. That's all I got. He did not ask for my forgiveness. Maybe he's listening. Old man in Dumas, still waiting. No, I'm not. I've forgiven him. Uh, because two weeks later, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I throw a shirt on and, and just a t-shirt like brushes my nose. And I was like, oh, like almost down to my knees. I'm like, what in the world? Now, a college student, I'm not going to pay medical. I don't even know where a doctor was when I was going to college. So instead, at the fraternity meeting, I'm like, I'm getting this out. So I scratch off the scab. I squeeze it as hard as I can, thinking I'm going to get infection out. A piece of lead shot goes, bing, 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 bing. And it rolls across the table. Fraternity brothers are like, oh, <laughs> like, that's amazing. <laughs> I'd been carrying around lead in my body for two weeks. Like lead poisons you, lead poisoning. That's a thing. And so it is if we don't forgive others. What if they never ask for forgiveness? If I would have waited for that guy, that old man to be like, hey, by the way, I left my shot in your nose. Can I, can I get it? Like, it was on me to release that, not him. And I was the one carrying around poison. It's been said 
that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. You're the one that's dying in your unforgiveness. And so God commands us to forgive. Nate Graybill, the guy who wrote the Regen curriculum, he taught me this, and I'll never, I'll never forget it. He's like, hey, you, you go, you confront people in their sin, but if they don't forgive you, if they don't ask for forgiveness, like, it's okay, Jesus has got it. And he's like, if they're a believer that's sinned against you, their sin's been nailed to the cross, Colossians 2, right? Like, just like yours. All their sin has already been forgiven, so who are you to still hold on to a debt that Christ has already paid if it's a believer who sinned against you? I was like, wow, that makes total sense. I have to forgive them. I mean, Jesus did, and he forgave me. I was like, but what about the unbeliever? And then he gets a little more somber, sober of spirit. And he's like, yeah, if it's an unbeliever, Jesus will deal with that too. He'll either deal with it at the cross or he will deal with it as they spend eternity in hell for their sin. The wrath of God separated from the goodness of God forever. Jesus will deal with the sin in both scenarios and that is haunting. I don't care what anybody did to you. The worst sins that have ever been committed against me, when I think about a person spending eternity in hell, it moves me to pray for them that they would know the forgiveness of Jesus and have their debt paid upon the cross. But Jesus will deal with it one way or the other, either at the cross or forever in hell, it will be dealt with. And so you don't carry that. We forgive for the purpose of unity. And then you have L, to love like God. Love like God. As I've been saying that we are to gospel our relationships as a verb form, it, some of you, there may be objections like, man, I get it, like God gave us the gospel, but it doesn't say anywhere in scripture we're supposed to gospel other people or gospel our relationships. Here it is, in plain sight, in Ephesians 4.32, that we, as we have received the gospel, we are now to live the gospel. We are to gospel our relationships. Here it is. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He very much is like, hey, hey, as I did for you, now you do for others. I gospeled you. You had sin. We were separated. You confessed it. I forgave you. We are reconciled and unified. Now, I want you to forgive others as God in Christ forgave you. And be imitate. I want you to imitate me as you walk through this world. And if we did, the world's never known a love like that. The world's never known a love like God. It is a godless, loveless world. And so as we walk out with loving like God, forgiving like God, humbling ourselves and asking for forgiveness, the world's gonna be like, who, who is this God that you know and serve and love who's changed you? I wanna know them too, I wanna know him. How can I be saved? But this verse, before forgiveness is ever needed, it says kindness must be seated. Before forgiveness is ever needed, kindness must be seated. We've got to encourage often. There's so much encouragement that God gives us throughout scripture. And I think right now we are at such a deficit in the world of any kind of encouragement. Like the world is so high on criticism right now. 
with getting blasted and ghosted and canceled and trolled. Like, it seems like the world's favorite pastime right now is just criticizing and going after people. But if we would turn that on its head, as it says here, be kind to one another and just kindness be seated before that forgiveness is ever needed. What a love like God. Well, how could we do that? Lord, you know what they did to me. Because he commands it and because he did it for you. He took all of your sin, the sin you committed against him. And it says in Psalm 103, he has separated it as far as the east is from the west. And as a father has compassion on his children, so he has compassion on you. He remembers you're just dust. We are just dust. We're to love like God who took all your sin and nailed it to the cross that it would never be brought before you again. And so we've lost the right. The ability to hold a grudge has been crucified and dealt with at the cross. Your desire to maintain bitterness and resentment, that right, crucified at the cross. It's been dealt with. The grudge that you've been holding, it's been dealt with at the cross. That we would love like God, that we would look upon Jesus on the cross, now empty tomb, us reconciled to the Father, and he's like, imitate me. Imitate me, because they're dying without love and bound for hell. Imitate me, therefore, that they might know and receive the love of Jesus Christ. To live in unforgiveness, grudge, bitterness, is to live contrary to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so when there has been a foul, by you or against you. Gospel your relationships. Follow God, not your feelings. Own your part. Move from unrest to unity and love like God. You remember that that wolf crystal that I put in Blake's house? All of us have put something in someone else's life or they've put it in ours. And we've got the gospel in these relationships so that we can walk free as we walk home and that God would be glorified, we'd be unhindered and loved like God. Let me pray. Lord, I have no amount of words to bring about any change in my life or those who are hearing. That is the Spirit's job. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would move in power today that the sun would not go down before we go to our neighbor our brother, our sister our co-worker, our spouse our children our grandparent and ask for or extend forgiveness for any foul that has ever been committed against us or by us that today there would be forgiveness And then, Lord, bring about revival in our lives, in this church, city, nation, and world until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we now sing to you, our risen Savior, who forgave us of all for your goodness towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.